Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, Satish. It's good to have you on the show. Hi, Michael. Very nice to be here. So that's a very nice background you have. Is that your university? That is actually the, uh, my school building, Case Western uh, Reserve University. That's a Bidahut School of Management. And that's uh, designed by Frank Giffrey. So that's why you have this unique, uh, you know, you might have seen this in museums, which he has designed. Uh, yeah, so, that, so because it's a very striking picture, and I thought, wow, that's a beautiful building. It is. It's it amazing. Is. It's, it's amazing that the school was far-sighted enough to hire someone with good design skills to build a landmark that becomes an attraction. That is very much true. And the department that I belong to is actually the Department of Design and Innovation. We give a lot of importance to design thinking. Okay, very yeah. interesting. So I'm obviously very familiar with your work. I've actually used your work before in the past as reference points, but let's, let's maybe start off by defining two important words we're going to use. And I think it's good to define how you see the word digital. What does it mean for you? We're going to be using it a lot. And what does the mm -hmm. word globalization mean for you? So when we start talking about this for the audience, they're all on the same page. That's a good uh, starting point. I think uh, digital has become very, very broad these days. So it, imp it implies a lot of digital technologies, which we, you know, we use on our daily lives or in our work lives. Um, anything from social media to uh, different types of platforms that we use on the work, uh, Slack and things like that. And then we have uh, blockchain and these specific technologies, uh, mobile technology, cloud computing and all this. But I take a slightly broader perspective and because digital is really uh, the foundational uh, technology and on top of which we have lots of capabilities. So we're yes. really interested in all those capabilities that are enabled by digital technologies. That's what we are really interested in, not necessarily the, you know, the hardware and the software that uh, enables those things. Yeah. I just want to make sure that the audience gets that. So, and also we, we get the right reference here is that we're interested in the capabilities that are enabled by digital. Yeah. Okay, that's good. I like that. Let's just define globalization for the audience as well, because there's many different definitions out there. Yeah. So from at least from my perspective, globalization relates to the ability for companies to expand the footprint across the world. So if you are in a multinational enterprise M&E, then you want to uh, you know you sell your product or offerings to different parts of the world and. So the way you expand, that is really the globalization. So we say that if it is very easy to expand to different parts of the world, then there is less friction. Uh, you know, you can take pretty much the same business model and apply it other places. There are no barriers. Uh, then that is uh, globalization. So that, that uh, helps in the uh, uh, business strategy itself. Yeah. And so the thesis of your work is digital has made globalization much easier. Right. Which uh, you know, which all of us are very familiar with. For example, yes. you take a company like Twitter, yeah. right? Um, your Twitter is available in most parts of the world, and it's the same thing. It is the same software. It is the same interface. There is no difference in the offering. And for Twitter also, it's the same business model. Um, so, or any other social media, LinkedIn, uh, or Facebook, or it, take any uh, social media. So you find that uh, many of these companies are able to port the yes. business model from one country to another. Airbnb is another good example. You know, all of us have used Airbnb. Whether you go to Italy or, you know, India or other uh, countries, uh, you know, it, the core idea is the same that you yes. would, and, and it is enabled by a platform, a digital platform, which is also the same. So that, that really is digital globalization. So globalization that is fueled by or accelerated by digital technology. Yes, I like that. That's a good definition. What I found quite fascinating is that you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s, whenever you saw globalization taking place, there's almost always Western companies going to emerging markets. Mm. But now we're seeing the role of digital allowing 
sort of the emerging markets, for lack of a better word, to go into Western companies and be very successful as well. Absolutely, Michael. I think that's a very important point. So, uh, you know, you take the example of Oyo. Yes. You know, that's an uh, Indian-based hotel chain, which has become one of the fastest growing hotel chains in the world. Obviously, due to COVID, there were some problems in the last uh, one yeah. year or so. But I think prior to that, they were expanding so fast that uh, probably I think they were established in 2013 or 14. I don't remember exactly. But in around six to seven years, they were in 800 cities across the world. Wow, and that is, you know, that is something which we haven't seen. And this is an Indian company, right? Um, and what they, they have is basically a digital platform like Airbnb. Um, but it's, it's like you said, it's from emerging markets going into Western uh, European economies and flourishing. And there are quite a few other examples. And there's also a good example because we spoke about Twitter earlier, but that's purely platform-based. But here's an example where digital is helping a bricks and mortar company mm. expand faster because Oyo owns hotels, or yeah. at least they lease it. I'm not very familiar with their business model, but I know they're in the hotel management business. But that's an example where they're using digital to move much faster and globalize much faster in a bricks and mortar space. So it's not just about software companies. Exactly. Yeah. They don't, they, like you said, they lease, they don't own it, but they yes. lease. Uh, and uh, another uh, uh, such company would be Ola, which is also in, based from yeah. India. And they have expanded to, I believe, UK, Australia. So many of these markets, uh, they, have, they are actually, uh, you know, in Singapore, they beat Uber. So, so yes. you see that in some, uh, some of these companies coming out from uh, China, India, and other emerging markets are very, very successful. And they are successful because uh, the digital, digital technology sort of, uh, I would say, democratize or uh, you know, make it uh, much more easier for companies uh, from different parts of the world to compete in the same place. Yeah. And I think the example of Singapore is a good example because it is a lucrative prized market. Hmm. If you can win in Singapore, that's a big deal. It's not as if you're winning in some market that the company is not committing its maximum resources. That's a prized jewel in Southeast Asia. It's a, it's a base to expand. Absolutely. Yeah, it is also a test market. So if you yes. win in uh, Singapore, it actually shows that you can win in some of these Western markets. And yes. it's, uh, it, it helps to uh, validate your business model to a Western audience and, uh, and then it helps you to expand much more easier to other markets. Yeah. Yes. And I think what's interesting about this, I remember when I used to be a consulting partner in my previous life as a strategy partner, I remember talking to a Western media executive who was moving some of their production to China. And I remember telling him that, aren't you worried the Chinese are going to figure out how you guys produce entertainment and he told me the Chinese will never understand entertainment and then you have an example of TikTok yeah which is now growing rapidly because they understand what people want to see right yeah it's almost a bookend to a very bad business strategy yeah. and now TikTok's come out because yeah. for a long time sort of emerging markets and non sort of western companies were competing on the basis of finished goods yeah now they're competing on the basis of culture which is a big step forward right uh, and also, you know, we, uh, in, in business lingo, we call that as a reverse innovation, that uh, yeah. innovation coming from emerging markets like India, China, and uh, Brazil, and uh, down to the Western economies and being very, very successful. And uh, that I think there's more and more cases coming out these days. Uh, TikTok is probably one of the better examples, but there are quite a few other uh, companies who are uh, you know, who uh, g uh, get their birth in these, one of these countries and then expand very rapidly. And they have some unique uh, business model, which uh, then get ported to Western markets and find very wide applications. So I think we are going to see a lot more of these reverse innovations coming up in different markets uh, in the in, uh, US and the European uh, areas. And I think the point you make very well in your work is that what's allowing these things to flow so quickly and so across such a wide audience is digital. Yeah. If there exactly. wasn't a digital platform, they could only go as far as people who knew them, which would be anchored around their domestic markets. Right. So there are two things which uh, digital allows us. One is portability. So yeah. it makes the business model much more portable. Like we talked about Uber or, mm -hmm. you know, or these, any of these companies. 
Um, the second is scalable. So it's light asset and it allows you to scale so fast because you know whether you cater to 1 million or 10 million, it's just a matter of adding some uh, resources in your cloud computing infrastructure. Essentially, you're not uh, increasing that much in your asset uh, uh, requirements. Yes. And so both of these are very, very important in as you expand into foreign markets. Um, obviously, there are going to be friction in terms of you know, other regulations and policies and culture, things like that. But to a great extent, this portability and scalability are the two very, very important factors related to digital. You know, I remember having a meeting many years ago with the executive vice president of infrastructure for a major hotel group. And they were very proud of the fact that they take a long time to build out this infrastructure. Mm. You know, we talk about digital and we wonder why don't executives today see what Airbnb did, see what OYO did. But for mm. a lot of them, they have a mindset where they take pride in building out this infrastructure over a long period. And in many ways, they don't really appreciate the value that digital brings. Mm. It's something that they, they know they're losing due to digital, but their mindset is built in a time when they were building hard infrastructure. Do you also see that with executives you're working with? They, they know digital is important, but they're bringing this hard infrastructure mindset. That is very much true. So one, another aspect which probably we haven't uh, you know, talked about is digital allows you to mix and match yes. your assets, right? So in when you take uh, your offering or a business model or product to a different com uh, country, like you said, uh, you know, they would think about now, okay, now we have to bring all the infrastructure and build it here in this new, uh, new uh, market. Yes. But in, when you have digital, what you just need to know is plug and play. So you get some uh, other module or some other component from some uh, company in that particular host market and yes. then just add it to yours. And you are in, uh, so going back to example of Ola, for example, right? When it goes to Australia, what they make sure is that the payment systems are different. Yes. So, you know, they, they, that they can easily plug and play. They change the payment system and put a new one, which whatever is uh, you know best fit for Australian market, and uh, they are in business then. So it's very easy to adapt to the local conditions because of this flexibility and this uh, ability for digital to uh, you know to mix and match uh, what we call as recombination innovation. So so that I think is a very important factor that facilitates. That's a good point because I remember speaking to someone from Starbucks because all Starbucks look the same everywhere in the world. You go to a Starbucks in Thailand, it looks the same. But he was talking to me about how they use digital to understand the profile of the shoppers. And they put out different products based on that on the shopper profile. Mm -hmm. That's a, another example whereby because of digital, everything looks the same, but it's highly customized to the local audience. Yes. So that is again uh, that not just in uh, the you know, the Britain brick and mortar type uh, outlets, yeah. but also we see that in uh, fashion, for example, you know through online. So there yes. is uh, digital also allows you to acquire intelligence about uh, your customers in different markets. Yes, uh, much more easier than you know the sort sort of pre digital era. Let's uh, refer to that. So in the pre digital era, you would not physically go to a uh, country, you yeah. do some surveys and market research, traditional market research. But these days, you can buy a lot of intelligence um, yeah. from, and uh, these data is very, very powerful. Um, so companies that I have worked with, and you know, like Unilever, they utilize this uh, intelligence in a significant manner, and that helps them to uh, know their customers much more uh, before even they entertain the idea of going to that particular market. Yes, that's a very good example. It's also looking at the example of Shine Group, which is a Chinese fast fashion apparel mm -hmm. group. And they've in the space of, I think, two or three years become the largest seller of fast fashion products in the United States. Yes. Based in China. Yeah. And that's purely because they understand how to market digital marketing. Yeah. And they would never have been able to do that pre-digital in that space of time. Definitely. And that is a very interesting case study. You know, Michael, my wife started buying from uh, yeah. Shine and uh, we found that it's a little, you know, they have made it so easy, very much like Amazon, that yeah. it is almost addictive that they, if you order something from them uh, within two days, they FedEx it. And they, wow. that product is in US. 
in two days. And then it takes longer time for it to get it to your yes. place because it's yes. this last mile yeah. um, thing that they have to be. But they have extremely uh, favorable return policy. You just uh, send it back to some address in the US. And they have, I think they have taken the best ideas from Amazon. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, actually it's the first company that I'm aware of that has executed so well uh, and uh, be, being based in China. And I think, like you said, it's expanding so fast. I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, they become one of these biggest competitors to Amazon one of these days, because right now they are in just fashion, but they yeah. could even add other products. You actually raise a very, very good point here. They've built a digital competency in clothing and fashion, but that competency can be applied to many other areas. Yeah. You know, the way Amazon started in books and they moved out, yeah. these guys are starting in fashion. When you look at companies, you have to understand what their core competency is. When you look at Shine, you think it's fast fashion, but it's actually their ability to manage the flow using digital, which is a very unique competency. Yeah. And so the, one is logistics of managing the flow. And the other is, like you said, understanding the customers very well. They have, I think, an extremely good understanding of at least the US customers. They know what kind of fashion they want. The, even the website, if you go to the way they have put it, is really, really superior to many of these other competitors that you know I know about. So it's just not just a platform, but it's an execution. They really know their customers and they're executing extremely well. And that something is uh, you know is not very easy for other companies to uh, duplicate. And what I like about this story is that they're based in China. Yeah, it's not as if their senior executives and primary teams are based in the United States talking to American customers, but this is just the point of digital. You can talk to someone from around the world and get to know them without being there. It's a powerful advantage if a company uses it. Right. So that, that is, that Michael is the core of the book also that digital connectivity. That yeah. is really how well are you connected with your customers, with your partners, with your uh, subsidiaries, that connectivity. It's not just, uh, you know, it is not that while we, call it digital connectivity is not just, uh, you know, the, the actually the uh, technical connectivity. It is a capability or the ability to relate to those customers through digital means. Yes. That is really the important thing. So in this Shine case, I think uh, they have extremely good connectivity with their customers. And they also seem to have good connectivity with their partners. That is why this logistics is working so well. Yes, because I don't think all of it is in-house. They do have a fairly wide supply chain base there. But the yeah. point you made here is about digital connectivity. A lot of companies see it as just email. Yeah. A lot of companies connect to customers only through email and they think that's enough. Yeah. When you look at Shine and some of the big players, they have almost an immersive experience whereby they connect along multiple touch points and email is one small portion of it. It's not the primary way of reaching customers. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, there is another company that um, I recently came to know about, which is a New York-based, uh, it's a direct-to-customer company, DTC. It's a glossier. It's a, you know, the lipstick and uh, all kinds yes. of new products. And that is a, you know, I think that's going to be a big company one of these days. It's already growing so fast. They are expanding into markets. And right now it's in the European markets, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, in, in a, around three years time, you would see that that's going to be a big, and the secret of the success right now is the relationship or the connectivity with their customers. It's all digital. Social media, uh, they also have their own platform um, and the way they interact and relate to their customers, that is, uh, that is extremely, um, you know, uh, something which is, uh, we haven't seen in terms of uh, other companies in that same space. So yes. definitely it's not, you know, just providing some connectivity through email or some social media it is how you um, how you relate to your customers, mm -hmm. how you gather intelligence about your customers and understand your customers. And I think that is a, a two-way street. Um, and that is really what uh, digital connectivity is all about. Yeah, so that's a good point because I think that's something the audience needs to appreciate. A lot of times when you send emails, it's a rational point where you talk to a customer to explain something. But if you are engaging them on social media and so on, it's not rational, it's emotional. Exactly. It's an emotional, it's a feeling. You feel like you're part of some movement. Yeah. 
and and I think that's the point about digital. It allows you to have that emotive connection, which we couldn't really do as well before. But I want to switch gears a little bit, you know, talk more about macro issues. Globalization, bottom line means more competition because it means the best can now go and compete where they should compete. This is what it means at the end of the day, right? If you let down all barriers, customers will be able to select the best company. And more globalization means more competition. So what should executives do knowing the overall trend is more globalization? Let's just step back. Is the overall trend more globalization? So I think uh, if you just look back maybe 10, 15 years, I yeah. would say yes. Globalization has increased significantly. And, uh, you know, uh, probably in 2018 or 2017, I think the World Economic Forum said that, uh, you know, uh, globalization is on steroids. Yes. Uh, essentially because of digital technologies. So that is true. The number of multinational companies in the world has sort of tripled from 2000 to around 2012 or so in that 10 to 12 time period. So we have had significant growth in globalization and which we have experienced ourselves in our daily lives, right? Um, you can sit in, the, uh, in New York and work for a company that is based in some other part of the world. So it, it has become much more easier. But on the, on the other side, there are also forces that operate against that um, deglobalization, which is also, which now we are very familiar. Many of them are because of geopolitical tensions across the world, whether it is India or China, or the United States or Brexit and uh, you, know, you name yes. it, it's all over the world. So you find that there is tensions between countries, tensions between regions that actually percolates down to business in terms of uh, trade regulations or policies or barriers of some other sort. Um, so that is one part. The other part is the consumer culture. Uh, you know, that again is, um, so we can think about consumer culture as the global consumer culture, which, you know, whether uh, through Netflix or social media, all of us are exposed to the same type of content. And so there is a culture that we build around it. It can also be local consumer culture, uh, so in India, for example, there is a lot of push towards being vocal about local, which is essentially buying um, yes. more um, domestic manufactured products, which is there in the United States too. Yes. We have a Buy America Act. That's right. yeah. uh, it's in China, right? It is in so it is in the UK. Um, uh, in France, for example, they were concerned about digital taxes, digital yes. sovereignty. So you find that these uh, newer issues and you know some of them are older geopolitical tensions, some of them are new, are going to come as a sort of friction towards this uh, digital globalization. So that actually is really the interesting context uh, for us to understand how you know, multinationals can uh, navigate, how well they can navigate in this space. Well, let's talk more about the buy in America, buy in China programs and so on. In the long term, that can't be a winning strategy unless the products you are encouraging, incentivizing or penalizing the market to buy improves to a point where it's as good as the products you are keeping out. Right. I think uh, that would be the- um, The end goal. Rational and end goal, yes. Um, but I think what uh, intrudes on that logic would be uh, nationalistic concerns. So I talked about, uh, you know, a digital tax, uh, mm -hmm. which France is very much concerned about. So when Amazon sells something, where does the tax go? Um, yes. Tax dollars. Um, and so these are concerns. Um, in, in EU, for example, there was a whole lot of issues about uh, uh, how much power these big uh, digital platform companies like Google and uh, Apple and Amazon have, and whether that, um, you know, sort of uh, does it... Uh, uh, limit the national sovereignty of these governments. Yes. So those concerns are always going to be there, whether it is customers' data privacy and uh, you know all these other issues. So I think uh, it, there has to be a balance. There are going to be going to have new regulations and policies, but they may not solve all the issues. Yes. Uh, we always are going to have some tension or the other between countries. So I think that's what is going to be in the longer term. Uh, it might ebb and flow, we, we don't know, but uh, you know, I think uh, 
it is this uh, these forces uh, of globalization and deglobalization are going to coexist uh, in the longer term. Only difference would be, you know, at some point in time, things get flamed, and so you find a lot more friction, and then it goes down. Right yes. now, I think uh, right now I think there is a lot more friction than maybe five years back. So, in a manner of speaking, the overall trend is globalization, but there'll be pockets of deglobalization that move around. And this is not new. I mean, we've had this before. We used to call it import substitution policy in the past, mm. when we try to block out a certain product from coming in to force the local market to supply that. It's not new. So we've we've learned how to work with it, and it's never been a very successful policy. So coming back to the original question, how should executives think about this? Is this, a, is this one of those overriding trends mm. which you can't ignore? It's going to happen. What should executives be doing about this? Right, that's a very interesting question, um, which is actually what uh, you know, I've been researching also for the last uh, two to three years. And one of the things, so let me just uh, qualify the earlier comment that you made saying that uh, it has been there. What has changed is probably the dynamics associated. With it. So right now, the way, the speed with which uh, deglobalization forces operate has changed uh, compared to um, yes. even 10 years back. So now it's not that predictable. And that is what is really makes the, you know, uh, my life as a researcher much more interesting. How do you manage when things are not that predictable, when there's a lot more uncertainty in terms of the extent of these forces? Now, having said that, I think uh, a good uh, perspective to, um, or framework to think about how multinationals might manage is uh, the idea about loose coupling. So if, uh, you know, loose coupling or, um, is an idea that actually originated, I would say, in computer science or computing, where you know when you make a software uh, product, you want you have different parts of the software product, right? And you yes. want to be loosely coupled in the sense that one part is not completely dependent on the other part, so that when you change one part, you know it doesn't create a ripple effect, and yes. you have to go around and change everything everything else. So that's a very interesting idea, right? You can translate that into an organizational context, into the context of a multinational. So think about a multinational uh, company. It has subsidiaries in different parts of the world. It has factories, it has production units, it has sales units, uh, uh, it has partners. So it's whole spread out. Now these, um, ideally, if it, the whole world was highly globalized, you know, then like the, what we were talking about, you can easily take one um, business model from one place and put yes. it in another place, everything would work you would be actually optimizing on efficiency, right? Then you would couple everything tightly. You have lots of information going from one uh, part to another part. We know how the subsidiaries operate yes. and there is continuous information exchange. And that helps to increase the efficiency and responsiveness. But uh, in real world, like we said, in some part of the world, there might be some friction and uh, suddenly you have uh, some boycotting of the, your firm or your offerings. And so now you have to adapt. So in such a um, uh, situation or context, the loose coupling becomes much more practical and useful. So loose coupling is that uh, you reduce the dependencies between the different parts of your company. And so you can think about that uh, there is more freedom for other parts to make decisions on their own and to adapt to local conditions. And if you think about it, then it becomes easier that you know, if something were to happen in India or China or Brazil or United States or UK or some part of the world, then this multinational enterprise um, doesn't need to redesign its entire operations. The operations in that part of the world can readjust and that is all what it takes. So loose coupling allows uh, companies to continuously adapt to disturbances that happen in different parts of the world. Uh, without trying to reinvent its business model or its processes or its operational operations. So that, that is a very simple way to think about. Now, obviously implementing that is going to be much more difficult, but that is a, a, this notion of tight coupling and loose coupling just to think about uh, this challenge or navigating this tension in a much more uh, easier way. I like that example. I was speaking to Gary Hamill um, a few months ago, and he was giving me an example of a Chinese appliance manufacturer called, I think it's called Haya, 
if I'm pronouncing them correctly. And the way you describe a loose coupling is similar to the way they work, where they've pushed down decision-making as far down into the operating units, and they give the operating units the final say in terms of how to manage a design. If something goes wrong, it's fine. Don't call us, fix it. Find new yeah. suppliers, find out what you need to do. If you are losing money because your product is not competitive, you need to figure it out. Call yeah. on us when you need help, figure it out. If someone is dependent on you and you can't supply them, go to them, tell them what's happening and work together. But don't come to us and ask the internal strategy team what to do because it's not our job to fix it. It sounds very similar to what you're talking about. Exactly. So one way to think about it is that, uh, you know, traditionally um, companies and multinational enterprises which are highly centralized um, would operate as an intelligent hub where the yes. intelligence is all in the hub, right? And uh, like you said, instructions go out to different parts of the world in subsidiaries, how to operate. The um, other extreme is intelligent edge where the edge has the intelligence built into it. The yes. edge is the subsidiary in the foreign market, right? And so when there is a lot of chaos or a lot of disturbances, it is best to operate in the intelligent edge model. Um, when there is a, you know, then there you can think about how can I get the right combination of the intelligent hub and the intelligent edge to fit whatever context you are operating in? Because there is some benefit to having an intelligent hub, which is your efficiency, standardization, things like that. And intelligent edge provides you with this flexibility, this adaptiveness, this uh, localization, which you just mentioned. And so it is actually getting the right mix of these two for the multinational to, to operate at the ex, uh, best uh, possible manner. Yes, and it, it sounds, you know, people listening to this, just for the, for the listeners, it sounds theoretical, but it's not theoretical. And I'll give you an example of this, right? I remember writing to a company once and asking them for an upgrade. And it took three weeks for the customer support person to keep escalating this mm. to the head office who said, yes, you qualify for an upgrade or no, you don't qualify. What I'm asking them is not a difficult thing to do because they know I'm a long-term customer. That should be on their database somewhere. If they had an intelligent edge operating, someone could have pulled up my phone and said, look, this guy spends money with us every year. Just give him the upgrade in two minutes. Exactly. Yeah. It sounds theoretical, but it's not theoretical. It has a big advantage. Yes, it is not at all theoretical. In fact, we have lots of examples of companies actually using this um, in different situations, in customers, relationship with customers, like you said, in their operations, in, yes. in the production units. So if you were to do this uh, 20 years back, this idea is extremely attractive, but probably you would have more difficulty in realizing it in practice. Yes. Now, now you have blockchain, you have uh, IoT, you have uh, AI, all of these are fascinating technologies which allow you, provide you with the capability to execute on this. So, you know, in our book, we talk about an example of a company multinational that uh, actually uh, employs this idea in the production units using IoT and AI. So in the production units, if uh, there are some changes that needs to be made in the, uh, because of whatever regulations or whatever, all of that is done at the local level, unless there's some threshold level is uh, you know, reached, in which case it is escalated to the intelligent hub. So mm. you find that uh, there's a whole lot of things that can be taken care of at the local level and it increases the adaptability and its responsiveness and makes it much more faster to uh, operate uh, in a much more optimal manner. So I would say digital technologies and digital connectivity enabled by these technologies is the key differentiator now. Yes, and I always find it comes down to the psychology of the leader of that company. If all of these tools are available, are they willing to put in place a management structure and hire the kind of people that can make these intelligent decisions? Because an intelligent edge is not just the tools, it's having the right kind of people with the delegation of authority. You have to change the way you manage your business, whereby you're not really managing the business, you're managing the people who are making decisions for you. Absolutely. Again, I go back to this idea that uh, you know, digital connectivity is uh, not really technical connectivity, it is yes. a business capability. So part of that business capability is what exactly you mentioned, Michael, that you need to have 
the freedom for people to make decisions. So you need to have the right structure, right incentives and everything else along with that, the right processes, business processes. So all of that has to match the capability that uh, you know, digital technologies provide you with. And it, only then would you be able to actually do these things. Otherwise, you, know, you may have the IoT and the AI and all these pieces there, um, but you don't have the human or the talent to execute on that. You don't, you don't take the necessary decisions or you, you're, uh, you, know, you don't have the freedom to operate based on the intelligence that you gather at the uh, local unit levels. Yes, and I think culture plays a role here because you have to allow people to fail. If they're going to be taking risks, they have to fail at some time, but you have to have a system whereby you have to know that what they're failing at is okay and you're going to fail at a lot of things, but it's controlled failure as opposed to you know investing a billion dollars or something like that. And again, that's all relative, but failure is a big part of this. And that's one of the reasons companies hesitate to do it because they think you're going to get 100% success and that's not the case. If you're trying new things all the time and you're getting data from customers and you're trying to figure out how to respond to it, sometimes you're going to be successful. Other times you're not going to be successful. And you hope your few successes compensate for those losses. And what I find is that a lot of companies doing this, they look at successful digital players like Amazon and so on, and they just want to be successful, but they fail to understand that a big part of the culture is accepting a lot of small losses. Exactly. I think uh, that that is very, very important that uh, experimentation, that, that ability to provide uh, the freedom to experiment, uh, obviously fail at some point in time and learn from it. And uh, actually technologies allow you to learn from your failures too. So, so you find that there is a whole lot of more learning uh, that is enabled by these technologies. Um, but a culture, that, that is crucial. That is yes. the bedrock of this, uh, you know, th that is a really the foundation for all of these uh, technologies to be, you know, you, to, for you to actually benefit from these technologies. If you don't have the right culture, obviously none of these is, these are all just assets, which are yes. not going to help you. Yeah. It, yeah. Convert that asset into a capability and that's where the, all this culture comes in. Yes, when talking about conversion to capability, it's a very good point you're making. It's also the speed. Yeah, I remember speaking to someone on my team the other day, and we wanted to do something. They were telling me, we need to talk to customers. We need to do research. We need to cost it. And I said, can we get a working product in one week mm. and give it to customers? So the speed component is something that with digital, you know, we're working in a completely different way here. We can get, we can get working prototypes out in a week. Exactly. Yeah. Give it to customers. Get right. real feedback. That is true. So you know, it. Uh, just I just remembered there are these companies that have come up with. Uh, uh, I actually wrote a paper recently on online review platforms. These are uh, platforms that allow uh, hundreds and hundreds or thousands of customers to test run, sort of speak, a product. Yes. And give back even before you have reached the market. And so there are these, some of these companies are in UK and US, and I'm sure there are other places too. But that's a very, uh, you know, it's a sort of an emerging market space uh, for companies to operate because um, it's uh, really innovation analytics. Yes. Um, it provides you with the capability, the front end of the innovation, hmm. to provide you with lots of analytic capabilities. And um, that actually enhances the speed of experimentation and also how much you can learn from each cycle um, so that you are maturing much more faster. Um, I, I think, uh, the, uh, you know, in China, I was talking to, you know, I was consulting with some company there and uh, they told me that uh, they actually now uh, study live streaming. Uh, the data that comes from live streaming uh, mm -hmm. from the retail outlets, that actually becomes a big resource for them. So they, it is just like the, the, the extent of data mining that is possible in to understand the customers is you know, phenomenal. And I think that makes a big difference in the front end of the innovation, how fast you can uh, experiment, how much you can learn from each, and, uh, and also how the organization as a whole uh, brings down the cycles of learning and cycles of experimentation. Yes, there's so much data out there, there's so much tools which inevitably means some of people are going to be doing it badly. It's not just the data. You have to be pretty smart about what you, questions you're asking about the data. Right. 
or yeah. you go down the road the wrong route i actually remember many years ago one of the largest mobile manufacturers in the world they make uh, phones um, stood up in a conference the head of the company and said that there's nothing more they can innovate in phones they have asked their customers and they do not want touchscreen phones so what they're going to do is they're going to expand into other areas because they dominate the mobile phone market they can't innovate anymore and that was obviously the death knell for them because they were quickly taken out by a variety of players. But I think the point here is that there's so much data out there that it's important to, to be very clear about what you want to do with that data. You have to ask very smart questions so you can get inundated. Exactly. I think, uh, you know, the data is only a resource. Even yes. before you actually get to that resource, you have to know the broader uh, framework with which you're going to interpret the market. Yes. And if you don't have that framework, then like like you said, you don't know what questions to ask, in which case you don't know what uh, how to mine the data. So I think uh, data is not a substitute for your ability to read the market. It is mm -hmm. only a complement. Um, and uh, I think that is a very important insight for companies that, um, you know, a lot more data doesn't mean a lot more intelligence. Yes. Uh, uh, and so that, that I, you have to have the right talent also for that. Yeah. Um, so that because it comes back to the human talent that is required yes. to, it's not just the assets, it's not just the data assets, it's not just the uh, digital technologies, it is how you get the right human talent to work on those uh, projects. So, yeah. Yeah, so when I was a, you know, back in consulting as a partner, we would be able to design the analysis we were going to do before we even got any data. We'd know the hypotheses, we'd know what tests we would run, we'd know what we thought the test would tell us. Based on what the test would tell us, we'd be able to deduce what we think the answer should be. And then we would go out and look for that data that would help us with the analysis. A good way to say it is that the more data there is, the better your hypotheses need to be before you get into it. Exactly. And you know that as a researcher, it's all about those hypotheses you ask up front. Exactly. And I also teach uh, in my courses. Uh, so I teach a product development course for my uh, yes. graduate students. One of the first things which we do is articulating the problem statement yes. uh, for an innovation or product development opportunity. And then we have to test uh, what we call as problem hypothesis. So we make lots of assumptions about the problem and we have to test those hypotheses. So like you said, we had to go and collect data and uh, then validate those hypotheses before even thinking about a product concept. So I think uh, that is very, very important. And uh, while we have lots of tools, um, if you forget that part of the that thinking part, I think it is not going to, it, you're just going to waste a lot of money and time. Um, so yes. that is very much important. I, I, let me just also add that, uh, you know, this hypothesis, coming up with a hypothesis in the problem statement or problem hypothesis also requires you to understand the culture of the market. Yes. If you are, you know, the, the dominant uh, consumer culture in that particular market, and you have to really understand those uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, things that are implicit, uh, not very explicit. And that's why we also need this uh, loose coupling to some extent, because you have to... Um, be able to give more freedom to the people in the local units to connect with these assumptions in the local culture and to test those uh, validity of those assumptions that you make. And I think uh, that freedom is equally important when you develop products. So you can't sit in New York and develop a product for India. Yes. You have, to, you have to, because there are a whole lot of things that are different in the market space. Yes. Well, that's a very good point. You can't develop a product for India. India is not homogenous. It's very, it's one of the most diverse countries in the world. And every country is like that. I mean, China is extremely diverse. Russia is extremely diverse. Brazil is incredibly diverse. Yes. And the hard part with doing all of this is that so many tools are now cheaply available because the tech companies have made it cheaply available to us. And it's really easy to get caught into this process of being busy, but really going nowhere. And, and we already know that's happening because all the major companies and medium-sized companies have access to the same tools. Yeah. But not everyone is winning. Right. That, we use the example of Shine. Yeah. And if we were talking five years ago, we'd be talking about Zara. Yeah. But... Now, Shine is threatening Zara and H&M. 
So it's about if everyone has the same tools, how do I use those tools differently? What am I doing differently with those tools? Exactly. I think, uh, Michael, you have identified the key differentiator. It is not it is not the digital technology as such. It is the capability that you can build on top of that. And that is, uh, you know, that is not easy. So some companies are superior to other companies. And uh, so just because you have access to some data or just because you have access to blockchain or other technologies, it doesn't make uh, that you would succeed. You need to have, a, first of all, an understanding of the market or your business and how that business model works with that particular technology and you have to build the capability and i think that is a differentiator in uh, as you look at mnes uh, you know in across the in different industries or sectors yes i mean if you look at banks for example they're pretty much doing the same things right they have the same tools same resources same capabilities they hire from the same schools they serve customers in the same suburbs but some of them are harnessing their tools a lot smarter than others. Same exactly. with automotive companies and so on. So yes, the main, most important point, and I'm glad you put on that, it's about digital is the foundation, is what you build on it. It's completely up to you what you build on it, and you have to make smart choices in terms of resource allocation. Exactly, yeah. I think uh, uh, this whole debate on and discussion on digital transformation have unfortunately brought a lot more focus on the technology and yes. less focus on the capabilities. Yes. So I think uh, we are under the impression that, you know, as soon as you get these, acquire these technologies, uh, we are in game and that we can succeed. Unfortunately, it is a capability that is the differentiator. And capability means you have to have the right talent, you have to have the right uh, relationships, connections, um, partners. Um, you know, all those things um, are required. So it's not just the technology. Technology is definitely an enabler, but what you build on top of that is the real uh, deal. And you can take that even further, as you say, you can paraphrase in a different way to say that you don't have a digital strategy. You have a strategy that digital is going to enable. Exactly. Yeah. So while we call it as a digital global business strategy, yes. what we really mean when we define it in the first chapter itself is that uh, it is a business strategy that is enabled by new and powerful digital technologies. So without those business strategy, there is yeah. nothing to be enabled. Yes, exactly. There's nothing to enable, there's nothing yeah. to turn on. Exactly, yeah. If you have a bad business strategy that's enabled with digital, you'll just get to a bad business strategy faster. Absolutely, yeah. So it, it is, uh, you know, technology is only enabling, it can enable good or bad strategies. And obviously if you pick the wrong strategy, then I think uh, you're going to go faster, but not to the right uh, outcome, unfortunately. And we're seeing that play out in real time. If you look at electric cars, for example, right? Everyone's going to electric cars, but some of them are picking strategies that are not going to work. Others are picking strategies that will work. Digital is only gonna help them get there faster, but it's not gonna compensate for a bad decision. Exactly. I think uh, that, that that is something which, uh, you know, unfortunately, I uh, it is as much as you drill it down to a, a lot of executives, it doesn't just get in because uh, you find this, uh, you know, the next, uh, uh, the fancy technology comes in and there's a whole lot of articles written about this new fancy technology. Unfortunately, yes. we never get into this uh, discussion about what is the strategy that is enabled by this uh, new technology. And unfortunately, that is the part. So we, we hope that even in the book um, that we have, uh, you know, we have emphasized this several times that what is really important is your strategy and your capability that you build to the the technologies. Technology is only an enabler. And uh, we have sort of uh, repeated it like a mantra right down yes. to the last chapter. Um, hopefully that message would come out. It does come out, not just in your book, in your general work, but it's the most important thing because every shiny new objects will get press attention. And as a business leader, you've got to understand, okay, there's some new technology. Can it help me serve my customers better? Can it help me add more value to my customers than my competitors? If the answer is no, then I need to back away from this. If the answer is yes, then how do I invest and how do I integrate this? But it's not about how do I change my strategy to adapt to the new technology. That would just be bad strategy. Right. I think uh, the starting point is what you want to achieve in your business. 
uh, in what strategy you want to pursue with that. And then you can look at, okay, now that I know where I want to go and this is the way I want to go, how can technology help me to go faster or to go uh, you know, in a much more cost-effective manner, whatever. But I think uh, the technology is not going to set your goals and the technology is not going to set your strategy. That yeah. has to come separately, yeah. Unfortunately, you know, there are many companies that do it the opposite way and it's not going to end up well for them. That is true. And uh, like you said, it's this, uh, you know, the shiny object is always more, even for, um, you know, the, some of the people inside the company, whether it is in the digital part of it or it becomes a little bit more exciting to play with the newest technology. Yes. And unfortunately, then they get carried away with that technology. And then there's a whole lot of consultants uh, you know, who come and yeah. sell the technology. And so we are on a path to use the latest and uh, until uh, somebody gets disillusioned, uh, you know, you go along with that path. Um, that, that's true. Typically, the many companies uh, go through those cycles. Well, I would see that in management consulting. Every few years, someone comes up with some new fad and companies under pressure. Do I take my entire organization through a wrenching transformation to roll this out? And many of them do it because they're told it's best, but does it really add value to the company? Maybe, right? right? It's, yeah. it, it, we talked about digital tools, but it's the same about management tools as well. It's always about, you got to know what you're doing and how the technology or the tool is going to enable you. And as a business leader, it's your call to make, but you, you have to be clear about the benefit of using it and how to use it. Satish, exactly. thank you so much. Is there anything you want to add before we wrap up? No, I think uh, I think the important part is how you create value. Yes. You know, in, in the market space and technology or any other strategy that you can think about is only about how that value creation process is enabled. I think if you take your eyes off the value, then you're not going to be successful. So let me just. Uh, no, that's a good point. That's a very good point because don't think the technology is going to create value. You know, in consulting, we call it the benefits case. The benefits case must be clear. Otherwise, exactly. don't do it, right? Because you're just going to cause disruptions to your business, destroy capital, upset shareholders, upset customers, and so on. So that's a good ending point. Thank you so much. I thought that was one of the better conversations I've had in the podcast. It also seems timely because digital is so big today. Everyone's talking about it. It's everywhere. But you've got to remind people what are the right questions to ask about digital. And I think that's what I hope people would take out of this. Thank you, Michael. I enjoyed your, uh, you know, the conversation that we had. I, hopefully, you know, some of these messages would come out and help companies or executives who are thinking about this digital transformation in a, you know, going in a newer uh, approach towards it, at least in terms of thinking. Thank you. Thank you, Satish. We'll definitely be in touch. We enjoyed the conversation. And for people listening in, if you want to see other interviews, get access to books and all our videos and so on on strategy and so on, go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo. Thank you, Satish. It was an absolute pleasure. I hope you have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.